there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of forward-thinking investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion-dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Except for today. Today is a investor segment where we're talking to Hunter Walk, who is a partner and co-founder at Homebrew. Welcome to the show. How's it going, Hunter? Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'm a co-founder of a venture fund, so it's not exactly the same as uh, most of the folks you have on, but I'll, I'll try my best to bring the founder mentality in addition to the investor mentality. Well, it's good. You know, I, you know, every maybe 30, 40, 50 episodes, I throw in a curveball to the listeners and bring in an investor, you know, from New York or Silicon Valley and it keeps them on their toes. So today is a curveball officially. Um, so my, uh, my first question for you is the question that I kind of start with um, for everyone is, you know, you're in VC, breaking into VC, there's like a million ways to break in. And it's very, you know, the, the path to break in is sometimes opaque. So I'm curious for you, just overall kind of basic question of kind of how do you find yourself in VC and outline kind of your path um, from, you know, where you were to VC Then we can kind of dive into some more specific questions. Yeah, sure. Isn't there always like the joke that if you start something, it was because you couldn't get hired or something like that. Um, in my case, it wasn't quite that, um, you know, I started my career on the product management side of the house and sort of tech startups, tech companies. And so I got to know um, you know, some of the venture capital partners, firms, you know, the landscape generally through that. And my first real encounter was, you know, besides having venture capitalists as investors in the startup I was at before Google and stuff was, you know, there was a period, I think in like the late 2000s where, you know, all of these venture firms decided they needed operators, like they needed operators to become partners. It used to be, you know, bankers and lawyers or, you know, career investors. And so I was kind of shiny for a little while because I had been running, you know, a product at YouTube and, you know, I went to business school at Stanford, like, and I was a tall, white, heterosexual male. Like I fit in very well with, you know, like the VC uh, pattern matching. And so, you know, like people would ping me about like, oh, hey, uh, you know, you want to explore coming here as a partner, that type of stuff. And, and to be honest, I never pursued those because I wasn't, I wasn't done operating yet. I wanted to s- still stay on the sort of building side of the house, not the helping. Um, but what happened was, you know, sort of late 2012, uh, I was thinking about leaving Google after nearly a decade. And um, 
my, you know, sort of now co-founder for Homebrew, Satya Patel, he was freeing up from having run product at Twitter. And um, we had always wanted to work together again. We had worked together at Google in the mid 2000s. And when we started talking about what we would do together, Homebrew came out of that. And it came out of sort of the Homebrew and venture specifically being the answer to a question, which was, you know, how do we want to spend our time? And when we talked about wanting to spend our time for the second half of our careers, working primarily at with companies at sort of the zero to five year stage, you know, maybe you think of it as seed to series B from a venture standpoint. And when we talk about wanting to work on not just the types of products that we knew how to create, but frankly, the types of products, the types of companies that we wouldn't be the right people to build, right? So amazing people building in healthcare and agriculture, um, you know, in, in areas that we didn't necessarily have specific backgrounds in, but we thought we did have a set of operating experiences and, you know, over time access to capital that we could help support these people and hopefully help them build a foundation um, for a company, you know, that they'd really be proud of, not just an economic outcome, but like something that, you know, matched the vision they had in their head for solving a problem they cared about, building a team that they believed in, and then everybody sharing in the rewards for you know, a successful business. So Homebrew was kind of born out of that. It was born out of a partnership and an answer to the question, how do we want to spend the back half of our careers um, rather than any particular, you know, I'd say even any particular love of venture capital as, a, as an industry. Um, you know, the, the venture capital is the business model that allows us to do what we love. And when you decided to to start Homebrew, um, how did you kind of think about what type of firm you wanted to to build? I mean, there's some firms that invest tons of small checks into into a lot of startups. There's some that are much, some that are much more concentrated. I guess my first question is, how do you kind of decide to get to that answer? And what are you? Just to kind of have you outline what type of f- fund you are, what kind of checks you write, and kind of what sectors you like. Just overall the basics on homebrew. Yeah, and then we'll, yeah it would be that. Absolutely, be I'll flip those answers because it's easy to say what we are. We're very basic, very simple. We're a early, small, early stage fund, two partners with a small team behind us, we focus on concentrating our time and our dollars. So we make about eight to 10 investments a year. We're usually putting in, let's say one to $2 million of somebody's first zero to 5 million. Sometimes that can be the first dollar in, you know, um, sometimes, you know, we will be leading a more institutional seed round um, after a company has raised a little bit or bootstraps sort of the way. We don't care. Like the best time to fund a company is when you're talking to them, you know, so um, we don't, we see seed as sort of a phase, not a particular round. Um, and then we spend most of our, you know, sort of sweat reputation and, a, you know, additional capital, like I said, in sort of that seed to series B. So when we step, you know, let's say from the boardroom, you know, to, to be more of a, you know, on, on speed dial for the founders. It's once they've hit the point where they, you know, are three to five years in, they've raised, you know, usually two successive rounds of capital. They've got the beginning of a real executive team in place, you know, way past product market fit. They have a, you know, not just a funding story and a graph that's up to the right, but they have a foundation for something that they're going to be able to continue building for the next five to 10 years. Um, so then, you know, you sort of ask the, the question of like, well, how did you, how did you get there? Or how did you decide that? Um, you know, we had the benefit of two things. First, my partner, Sacha had done venture before. So whereas I had stayed on the product side of the house and maybe done some angel investing, he'd gone back and forth between, you know, product leadership, operating roles and um, venture capital gigs. So he knew a little bit about, you know, the different models, some of the trade-offs in those models, um, you know, what, what some of those decisions actually meant you spent your time doing, right? So if you're, if you have a billion dollar fund and you're, you know, 
there's only so many companies <laughs> that return the types of dollars that like help you be successful. So that type of you know investing is very different than if you're you know a smaller fund like ours. Our third fund is a ninety million dollar fund, and it's not to say that we look for founders who are any less ambitious or have any you know sort of a different type of um, expectations or goals. But like we can we you know we don't we can help them find their path help them figure out who they are we don't have to force them into an up or out sort of model within a specific time frame i sort of say like you can't put a baby in in like an adult you know in adult clothing and yell at it to grow faster you know and so we realized that what we really wanted to do was be able to spend time with the founders not disintermediate ourselves with you know uh, a team of you know analysts associates um, you know, other professionals, we wanted to be hands-on. We wanted to support them as individuals. We wanted to help them grow as leaders, not, you know, and so they could be the long-term leaders of their company. So we wanted to help them focus on personal development as well. Um, and we didn't want to, we didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on like firm operations or, you know, politics or stuff like that. And so that meant that we, you know, weren't going to grow the partnership and we probably wouldn't grow the fund too significantly. And so when you sort of prioritize those things, like, everything else sort of falls into place, or at least that predetermines some of your strategies, right? Like we've always raised our fund sizes to our strategy, not to demand. There's plenty of capital out there for, you know, for, um, uh, for venture firms that, you know, look like they can, you know, meet or exceed their return goals. Um, I think one trap that people fall into in the venture landscape is they outraise their strategy or they raise to a, they raise to an amount where their strategy is no longer as relevant and they don't realize it. So all of a sudden they have these large checks, um, but they're not providing enough value, you know, to sort of uh, earn that spot on the cap table. Uh, and that's when sort of venture firms kind of go, uh, go sideways. Um, we've tried to very much focus on being the best version of homebrew, not, you know, the junior version uh, or the next version of somebody else's model. So you mentioned at the, the tail end of that, that answer that there's plenty of capital out there. And it, it does seem like there is... Um, kind of a rise in this interest in VC and a rise of investors. And it seems like the, the startup industry is really, um, I, who know, I'm not here to call it bubble or peak or whatever, but it, it's active. It's more active than it was you know, a year ago, which is more active than it was a year ago. I'm curious for you, has it been hard for you to maintain the same pace and the same activities that you spent time on in 2012, 2013, 2014, when the market was a little less crazy versus now when so much is going on? Um, is it challenging for you to just kind of do your thing? Or how do you think about kind of making sure you match the market, but still play a homebrew game? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a, and it's a question that, you know, Sacha and I talk about and revisit all the time because, you know, look, there's a lot of things that have changed over the last decade that don't impact us, you know, like SPACs, like you don't make a seed investment, you know, in a company that's built a SPAC, like, you know, uh, you sort of, a company gets three, five, seven, nine years down the road, it's ready for, you know, an exit. And now all of a sudden, maybe this is a way to sort of think about a public market exit um, that, that wasn't as prevalent before. But then, like, as you say, there are some things that do change the seed market. Um, velocity, you know, amount of capital and velocity of capital deployment is certainly one thing. Um, we were never built to, you know, exploit a shortage of capital. It wasn't like when we started in 2013 that we had some, you know, sort of premonition that like, well, nobody's here to fund these early stage companies. Like that had been solved, you know, 10 years ago with the first generation of early stage funds um, that, that did recognize a capital gap and build up an expertise gap around, you know, sort of the seed stage. 
Um, so for us, you know, we see an incredible amount of capital continue to come to market. But as you mentioned earlier, it sort of comes to market mostly in two forms. Uh, and both of those forms, I think, speak more to the needs of the investor than necessarily the needs of the entrepreneur. More and more people who want to write small checks into lots and lots of companies, and by definition, they're going to be more reactive in, in helping those companies. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, every syndicate we're a part of has a great number of those people, many of whom punch above, well above their ownership weight in terms of the value they provide. Um, and then on the other side of the barbell, you have these larger and larger funds, some of them multi-stage, but, but even the early stage funds that we grew up on are now in the hundred, you know, now managing hundreds of millions of dollars with teams of dozens and dozens of people. Like um, they've evolved, like, you know, I'm sure in some ways for the better in some ways for the worse in terms of, you know, what they can practice and what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I feel like what the challenges for us isn't so much reacting to or game planning out, you know, sort of how those people are going to run their firms. But continuing to prove the value to the entrepreneur um, that, look, you know, there is something unique about having, you know, a, a partner like Satra or myself who has the combination of, you know, operating experience and empathy for the building journey, plus the, uh, the capital to, you know, lead or co-lead your round, plus the, you know, the gravitas within the general venture community to, you know, help attract more capital and, and you know, and, and talent. Um, that doesn't come, you know, in very many early stage firms as an offering. Usually, you know, you have to uh, you have to remove one or two of those. Um, uh, all three is pretty unique. Now, that being said, what do we find, you know, that has changed? Well, obviously, uh, you know, it's a great time to fundraise if you um, are able to attract multiple offers. You know, the the valuations, the, the sort of pre product, pre product market fit, pre revenue valuations have gone up. Um, we are we are we are not usually playing auctions. We can uh, the the investments we want to make. Um, you know the co-founders have selected us and we've selected them, and then we're just trying to figure out what a fair deal looks like. But you know we have to be responsive to the market, and so you know the 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 check size it's taken you know to get to that ten to fifty percent ownership you know has probably doubled you know between fund one and fund three. Um, but you know, we've also increased from a $35 million fund to a $90 million fund. So we're gonna stay in our lane, um, but you know, we can't totally ignore you know, the, the, the other cars on the highway. And one more question kind of in this camp, and it's really coming from tons of entrepreneurs that ask me, I ask the same question. So I'm curious for your take. Right now, you know, as mentioned, it's very active, lots of capital, bubble or not, I don't know. But I do, I personally feel like there will be a point in the next like one to three years where things settle down, it might be a little harder to raise again. I'm curious, as I see tons of companies raise so much money with nothing and the valuations that are sky high, is there, is it, how should people think about a potential slowdown of the market in like a year or two and planning their raise today so they don't kind of shoot themselves in the foot, raise at too high of a valuation, and then like kind of screw themselves when the market slows down? Is that something yeah. that you kind of advise founders on? Some curious Look, Matt, it's a, it's a great, great question because, you know, startups aren't built to play defense. They're built to play offense, right? And so, you know, it's sort of this notion of, well, you know, most startups fail. So why shouldn't I just be aggressive? Or like, I'm going to be the outlier. Can't you tell? Like, why, if you don't think I'm going to be the outlier, why are you backing me? Like, why are you telling me not to raise money? You know, that type of thing. So it's a really tough conversation actually to have. I, I find in some ways we can counsel people, you know, with all different sorts of scenarios and help them understand the trade-offs they're making. But sometimes like founders talking to founders, especially experienced founders who maybe like, 
um, you know, tried to use capital as a weapon or thought capital would solve, you know, culture, product, you know, sales problems and realize, no, you have to solve those problems. And then capital helps you, you know, helps you scale the solution, not find the solution. Um, so here's what I tell founders in general. I, I tell them a few things. I say, look, um, you can play offense without giving up optionality, depending upon how you think about who you're taking capital from and the structure and amount of that capital. And so what I mean is, um, you know, different type of funds, like I talked about earlier with their sort of definitions of what success looks like, which are just based on their fund size, have different operating models and different implicit and explicit bargains that you're getting into. So when you wanna bring on a billion dollar firm in a seed round, you are playing offense and you're giving up some optionality. When you bring them on an A round, you know, there's different scenario, B round, different scenario. At some point, you are going to want to trade off or need to trade off, you know, optionality, timeline, urgency, you know, for um, uh, getting that type of capital, you know, into your company. But early on, you know, I think it's worth, it's, you know, capital won't solve your problems. I know it sounds like to an entrepreneur who needs capital to survive, of course, your job is always to put in the bank, but it's, you know, it's sort of, you need a minimum amount to, a minimum amount to start, but, you know, very few cases, is it going to be the reason that you, you know, you succeeded. And so what we try to guide people to is like, don't overraise ahead of knowing, you know, what you want to do with the capital and believing that you can spend that dollar of invested capital to create, you know, way more than a dollar of enterprise value. Because the next round investor is going to be saying, okay, what have they solved for? What have they, you know, what have they done since the last round? And, you know, now is this company worth two, three, four times what it was last round? The other thought exercise that we sometimes suggest is, um, what would you do if this round of capital was the last capital you had to raise or you could raise. And again, it's not to create a doomsday scenario plan or to not be aggressive in how you want to deploy capital, but just to get people in the mindset of at least asking themselves, if it turns out that I have to stretch this round a little bit further and or you know I choose not to raise more capital, like what would that look like? Um, because I think some of that some of that thinking is better done you know ahead of, having spent all the money or ahead of being forced to the reality. Um, I think it's also one reason why you, why you wanna make sure that you have some investors on your cap table who have the ability to write a second check, right? So um, one of the value of sort of institutional investors, you know, which I sort of include ourselves, is that um, you know, uh, my, my interest in your company and my ability to fund it isn't solely tied to you know, how much my Facebook stock is worth or things like that. You know, obviously I said like angels and other stuff are important components of the ecosystem. Um, but when we commit to you, like, you know, we're able, you know, to, to, to back you through, through a downturn, you know, so long as you're performing as a company. Um, so, you know, think about the durability and I guess sort of the, um, you know, the uh, ability of your, what part of your cap table do you think can support you you know, through uh, uh, an economic cycle, because you're right, like over the last 12 years, you know, we could, we could every year say, this is a bubble, this is a bubble, and we'd be wrong, you know, uh, for, 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 for a decade or more, but like, eventually, you know, eventually you'd be right. <laughs> for sure. Um, it, it is an interesting timing, timing game. Um, well, cool. I have another question, pretty unrelated um, to actually, um, something that you launched recently, um, which I kind of want to learn more about. Um, I saw on on Twitter and just kind of the internet, you launched something called Screen Door. Um, oh, yeah. I, I would love for you to share 
what Screen Door is and why it should exist and just yeah. to tell us about it. Hey, I really, I really appreciate you asking about it. It's, um, it's something that's very important to Satya and myself and, and some of the other firms that we got involved. So when Satya and I started Homebrew in 2012, 2013, there was one fundamental um, trade-off that I sort of referred to, which was if we're not going to grow um, you know, in a multi-general partnership, our aspiration wasn't to become, you know, sort of a multi-billion dollar firm. I mean, look, you know, it's our, it's our business. We can always revisit those decisions, but we sort of started off with a mentality of, we want to stay small, close, tight knit. One of the challenges of that means that we're not expanding the partnership. Um, we, we have some other people on the team, um, people who come from very different backgrounds, you know, look different than such and myself, but we were very, very aware that, um, although we're proud of the work we do and we've, you know, believe we worked hard to get where we were, that, you know, you essentially have two dudes, you know, one white, the other uh, Indian, you know, sort of running a venture firm, like we look like VC looks like. And we had seen the value of different, you know, especially when we were both on the product side of the house of building teams that are, you know, full of different opinions, different backgrounds, different cultures, you know, because that's what, you know, that's what the world looks like. That's what your user base looks like. That's what founders increasingly look like. And um, we also knew that we had access to capital because we pattern matched, you know, and had a good set of experiences and that's what made people comfortable with us. But there's this sort of fundamental challenge to first time emerging managers raising their first venture funds. It's a chicken and egg sometimes. It's the, um, the institutions and what I mean by institutions, I mean sort of, you know, college, university endowments, charitable foundations, pension funds, people who have very large sums of money to put into all asset classes and have been sort of enduring supporters of venture. Um, it's a chicken or egg argument with them. Like they want to see a track record before they're ready to back you. But how do you get a track record if you don't have capital to invest? Um, there's also a sort of size issue. Very often those first funds that people are creating are between you know, five and $50 million, which obviously sounds like a tremendous amount of money. But when you're an institutional investor with billions of dollars under management you know, and, and backing some venture funds, you're looking to make 10, 25, $50 million commitments per fund. So obviously too big you know, uh, to, to, or would, you know, would swap the size of some of these venture, uh, emerging venture funds. And so um, the sort of desire for those institutional investors to get closer to the emerging manager market, like people who are starting their first funds may or may not have venture backgrounds, but have, a, have something that suggests that it could be a good venture uh, investor. And the desire for funds like Homebrew to get beyond just what we do in impacting the venture landscape, but help create the next generation of homebrews and the next generation of homebrews to you know, be as broad and diverse as possible. So that's a lot of backstory. Um, but let me tell you what Screen Door is. Screen Door is a $50 million plus uh, committed vehicle supported by uh, great institutional investors like Hall Capital and Duke and Princeton and Harvard and Michigan and Virginia. Um, and staffed by 10, uh, to start with, 10 uh, early stage VCs, all of whom built their own firms. So Sachin and myself from Homebrew, uh, Leah and Chris from Fuel, uh, Kirsten from Forerunner, Charles Hudson from Precursor and, and some other folks. What we are doing is um, we're gonna back 12 to 15 new venture firms over the next three years. We're gonna write about 500,000 to $5 million checks into their funds. So try to be a substantial part of what they're fundraising, maybe you know 10% or more. 
and also bring them into a community where we can help mentor them on the firm building side. They're all going to be great investors. They don't need our opinions on, you know, should they make an investment or not? But the idea of what it means to build a firm, how you think about LP management, how you think about portfolio modeling, you know, just the ability to tell folks like this is usual, this is unusual. You know, it's I often find a lot of the value I provide to a founder in a startup, um, given our perspectives and experience, is just telling them like when to worry and when not to worry. You know, and so um, this is not a philanthropic uh, endeavor. Uh, all of us are putting our own money into the to the fund as well. Um, but as managers of the fund, we're actually not taking fees and not taking carry. So it's meant to show, you know, meant to show that. Um, we're putting skin in the game and not just trying to, you know, line our own pockets with aggregating capital, but, you know, our upside is in the economic performance of these 12 to 15 new managers. So I sometimes jokingly say um, we're, you know, we're creating our competitors, um, but doing it because we believe enough that uh, too much of the venture capital landscape has given lip service to diversity. They've talked about how important it is, but it takes time. And they've moved too slowly, um, often sort of thinking they're solving the problem uh, by, you know, making one or two hires at their firm that look different and or giving office hours, you know, to underrepresented founders and things like that. Uh, that's not enough. You know, you need to sort of figure out how to make wholesale changes, how to come together, not just as a firm and some content marketing, but, you know, coalitions of people and individuals who can put money to work to sort of change the faces of venture capital. And that's what we're doing with Screen Door. Uh, it's available at, I don't know if you put show notes or anything, but you can, you can link to screendoorpartners.com um, for people who want to work more, uh, want to learn more about it. Um, and there's uh, all sorts of uh, information there. I appreciate you sharing that. And honestly, just appreciate you coming on to the podcast and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge on markets and how founders should make decisions and what you're doing with Screen Door. Um, for my last question for you is if there is, um, if someone wanted to like kind of learn more about you online, um, like a website or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, how can kind of someone find you if they wanted to, to learn more and follow more of your content? Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Hey, I appreciate you asking. Um, so hunterwalk.com is sort of my evergreen dry piece of land on the internet. I'm old school enough to believe you need a URL built on open source, you know, with open source publishing software. So no, no, nobody can ever take it away from you. Um, uh, I'm also always available at hunter at homebrew.co. Um, I try return uh, every cold email at least once. Um, and uh, you know, people did it for me, and I want to continue to pay that forward. Um, and so I very much enjoy hearing from people. And then I'm, you know, I'm jokingly, you know, at Hunter Walk at you know Twitter and probably every other social space that exists. You can usually, if you type in, you know, uh, Hunter Walk as a screen name, I'm I'm probably there or will soon be there. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've done so much um, for the you know founder and entrepreneur landscape, and I'm you know happy happy to uh, happy to try to speak to your audience and uh, let them learn about me. I appreciate that.